0: You know how last week we spoke about QAnon and how conspiracy theories can divide us as a nation? Well, one of the things we think we can do to bridge the divide is to bring mindfulness and skills around living with mindfulness into conversations about race, racism, identity, beliefs, and to do that, we got to speak with an incredible law professor. And I know, right? Law and mindfulness. It's not the first companionship that jumps to mind, which makes it all the more powerful. What? Uh, named. <laughs> you, you definitely led with mindfulness, didn't you, in your law career, <laughs> me, Sasha? All the time. Yeah, yeah. I definitely never talked to you about that. <laughs> right? But this professor is named Professor Rhonda McGee, who also leads us in a fantastic meditation.
1: And in speaking with Rhonda, we learned not only about the role of law in helping as well as hurting racial divides. But we also discussed the role of mindfulness in helping people come into a grounded space to do this work in the first place. So again, like Sarah said, that meditation that she leads us through, try it yourself. Add in her own brand of racial awareness called Color Insight. And we left this conversation with not only some reframed concepts, but also a deeper understanding of why we all need to be doing this work. I loved it.
0: And by the way, listeners, did you know that we have a book coming out in less than a month? Check out our website, dearwhitewomen.com for pre-order information and follow us on social media to learn more, including some special opportunities to help promote. Drop us a line if you are at all interested. We appreciate you and thank you for being here with us. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. And we are your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. So excited to have you. Rhonda, would you please introduce yourself to our audience? Of course. Thank you so much. So my name is Rhonda McGee.
2: I am a law professor by day, as they say, but I also have cultivated a capacity to explore in my own life, mindfulness as a support. And I've also trained as a teacher of mindfulness-based stress reduction. And in the course of that, I have been exploring the link between mindfulness as a personal and interpersonal set of practices, but also how it can help us engage in collective systemic change work, and in particular, how it can help us with issues around social identity-based bias, including race and racism. And so I'm the author of a recently released book called The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. And I'm so happy to be able to talk with you about all of that today.
1: I was so excited to read your book because, you know, mindfulness and law, mindfulness and racial conversations, these aren't something that we Typically see a lot of yet, we're just sort of starting to see, but something that we think will become more prevalent as this work really evolves and people really understand those connections, right? Right now there's the division that lots of people are talking about, you know, how white people are canceled for making mistakes, people feeling all their feelings and hurting others along the way. And yet there's really ways this way, you know, that you, you are talking about in your book of calling people in. And so the first thing I want to ask is kind of personally motivated because as a lawyer. I'm super curious, how did your law background, you know, and coming up through that system inform this work? And we're going to talk about the work in greater detail, but how did that really draw you into mindfulness?
2: Oh, there's a lot there. But like, so how can I, in a nutshell, say, you know, to study law is its own trip, as you know, <laughs> those who've done it, and it's a socialization. And many have talked about how one of the consequences of that social like we learn knowledge skills and values that are traditional for being you know able to pass that bar and join you know this particular tribe and you know apply the skills of that profession about argument about you know analysis about thinking like a lawyer and communicating like a lawyer and all that and it's not lost on many that in that process we often get disconnected from our true values right as we've been trained to argue any side into right? Whatever we need to, because that's a skill. We get disconnected from our hearts because, you know, cognitive skills are valued so much more than emotional skills. We get disconnected from the sort of spiritual or imminent, the kind of aspect of our reality that's not reducible to the material because concrete outcomes matter so much in terms of law. And so there is this sort of whole, people have been talking about critical race theory Critical legal theory, which is a broader criticism of law that critical race theory originated as a part. Critical legal theory named the sort of way that legal training can be alienating. It can disconnect us from our hearts, from each other, from, you know, our deeper values, from the planet, right? Because, you know, it's just a resource that we can argue over. not the source of life. (laughs) So, yeah, there's some healing. Some of us in law have long sought a way of kind of addressing and healing some of the splits that law, right? Closing the gaps, reconnecting those worlds that law itself sometimes helps, you know, disconnect. And so certainly part of what I started out with is sort of was infused by a desire to help bring a healing dimension to how we resolve conflict. In fact, when I was studying sociology, I was studying how we resolve conflict. And and so there's something about all of this that's about healing from that. But also, in particular, when we talk about race and racism, you know, the law has been clearly at least as much an offender as it has been, right, the source of healing or liberation and freedom. We know this, it's been through law that race has been constructed in the ways that we've all been impacted by and our children are impacted by and we're trying to disrupt it in many ways. I know you all are. But it's been through law and policy that this thing called race became so important and such a line of division in terms of who thrives and who doesn't, who is included, who isn't, who matters, who doesn't. Rights to vote. To own property, to participate in this political community, to feel safe, even if we had a little bit of purchase, right? We were all rendered vulnerable by notions of the political subjects and objects that were through and through defined in terms of race, right? And so we think of some of that history as not being so relevant, but actually, it's all, you know, in some ways, not even past. You know, while the explicit commitments to race and racism in law and in segregation, obviously we're in a different world f- from what the history was around explicit racism and segregation and enslavement and internment and all those things. But we're not in a different culture. Like The culture still churns that stuff. It still creates lines of um, access and opportunity and privilege that run on you know, everything from colorism, like actual skin tone, lightness, proximity to whiteness, if not, you know, literal white supremacy, but like, how close are you to white? <laughs> how good are you at performing some version of whiteness, right? Or making us feel comfortable if it's a majority white space with your, whatever your sprinkle of difference that we might allow in. In other words, how race and racism operate today are maybe, you know, different than they were certainly a generation or two or more ago. But, you know, it has never been lost on anybody who's spent much time thinking about race and racism that it kind of has this capacity of becoming like old wine, new bottle, like just changing to meet the times, but, you know, rhyming, so to speak, with the past. So that, you know, the the conundrum of all of that, endlessly fascinating to me, very challenging, but I felt some responsibility as a law professor to help give my students better than I got, to help train lawyers who can do better than lawyers in the past around actually helping be vehicles for social transformation as opposed to just restoring and recreating the hierarchy. So that's part of why I do what I do.
0: I'm not even a lawyer and I think you're the coolest law professor out there. That sounds incredible. I think that's really thoughtful and helpful and healing and making progress in a way. And I wanted to ask, you know, for those who are new to mindfulness, I think what we always hear from people is, well, I don't know how to meditate. I don't know how to do this thing called meditation or mindfulness. Could you please walk us through a really short version of maybe like a meditation or a how-to or a breath practice? Absolutely. So let's
2: just take a moment right here, right now and pause. We can do this with our eyes open. We can do it with our eyes closed. There's no, it's up to us. But the invitation here is just to, for the moment, bring our attention to the sensation of being alive here, starting with perhaps feeling the feet on the floor, the body seated in the seated posture, if we're sitting in a chair, and just noticing the points of contact between the body and these supports. First of all, noticing that they are supports and just taking a moment to relax and rest. and come back home to a sense of the body in this posture. As we breathe in and out, sensing into the body as a whole, feeling the spaciousness Actually, If we can allow ourselves to just notice that we are this whole body, feet on the floor, scanning up through the lower legs, upper legs, lower torso. As we breathe in and out, that region where if we're attending to it, might feel a gentle rising and falling of the belly. And then up through this region of our midsection, our upper torso, such important region for just the functioning of our bodies and our survival, digestion, breathing, feeling the heart region, blood circulating. So just breathing in and out and just coming back home to this body that has gotten us here. As we continue this sort of gentle scan up through the shoulders and maybe down through the arms, sensing any places where there is tightness or any challenge, and breathing in uh, the sense of what is well within you, and breathing out the wish for well-being to flow through the whole body right now. And now, as we continue to scan up through the shoulders, through the neck region, We come to this part of the body, the face, the head. Oh, so important for the external work that we do. And we often kind of hold our face some way in ways that are actually holding more tension than we realize. So the invitation is to just check it out. Is there a place where we're tight in the face and if we're willing, maybe placing kind hands. I'm taking my glasses off, placing my hands right on the eyes with kind of kind, loving touching, coming home, letting, inviting the facial muscles to relax, softening the eyes, breathing in and out, huh. relaxing and releasing. And now as we continue that scan up through the crown of the head, right? Through that forehead and up through the crown and over forehead, the neocortex brain is always you know, so busy organizing. In this moment, if we can allow our attention to shift to the crown of the head, Breathing in and breathing out, back of the head. Imagine almost like a waterfall, <laughs> cooling, attending, allowing our attention to shift to these regions we often take for granted and forget about, so important for our well being. So just gently breathing in and breathing out, appreciating this life, appreciating this body, appreciating the heart that brought you here, the spirit of inquiry, the spirit of connection that brought you here. And so as we bring this meditation to a close, the invitation is to sense into maybe a word or phrase that is coming up for you as a way of reflecting what this experience has been like. And maybe you might pause and ask, how am I allowing moments like this, or maybe extended moments of practice like this, how might this be a support for me in this work that I want to do to help increase understanding around race and racism in these times, create a better world for my children and the children to come. So when and as you're ready, if the eyes have been closed, we can open them and really take this kind of spirit and energy of awareness and presence right into our conversation in a way that let's just imagine we're still practicing, but now we're doing the interpersonal practice of communicating that is connected to our being alive together.
1: Thank you for your practice. Thank you. That was amazing. You know, we read it in the book, you know, and I love how you sort of work those practices throughout the book, right? It makes it so helpful, but to have you do this for us was truly a gift. So thank you. You know, we have so many questions. So (laughs) I'm just going to jump into it, you know, because in the book, you really talk about, this color insight practice, right. That you refer to and in reading it, you know, the question that came up for us was, you know, what does it really mean to be aware of how we carry race in our bodies? And also I think the question that sort of came up throughout the book is who needs to do this work the most, or who needs to do this work period. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about those. Yeah. Thank you so much. I have to say
2: in a way that reflects both me being a law professor and a mindfulness teacher in <laughs> different measures, you know, I love the questions. And I think the questions actually are what we're, actually what I'm here for, because with a certain kind of humility around the biggest questions, it's like, we know there really isn't one answer, you know, Rhonda as Professor McGee might offer something, but really there's something about the question <laughs> that's meant to kind of inspire us to engage with something big bigger than the little answer that any one of us can come up with which is why we need each other an example of how we need each other so color insight is one of those it's an invitation into kind of a big question how can mindfulness support us and and who is the we in that who needs to do this work well if we pause and think about it we all know something about race and racism don't we and We all know something about some of the harms that it can cause. We might know this from our own lived experience. And again, each of us has lived experience and it varies wildly. And so creating opportunities to reflect about the experiences that we have, you know, that's a big part of my book, because I do think we don't do that enough. We don't look at our own experience around this enough and impact them with some nuance. We certainly don't know much about how exactly to create space for us to do that across lines of real and perceived difference. There are a lot of minefields and a lot of ways we can feel like we're not ready or they're not ready or nobody's ready, so we can't do this. And I love that you all are creating this avenue and opportunity for folks to feel a little bit more ready, a little bit more capable of having these conversations, but So you can hear him with the way I'm responding. I actually think there's, this work is for everybody. Some of us need different aspects of it. You know, for some of us, it's partly maybe for me, I'll say, you know, I've been drawn to these practices to help in my healing from racism and bias and all kinds of isms, racism intersecting with sexism, right? We know that this work is about just our lived experience, which actually is we like to think we can break out the race piece and the gender piece and the ethnicity piece and the language and the immigration piece. We're these soft-bellied, <laughs> carbon-based beings having experiences. And we try to, yeah, we try to put them in this box so that. no, actually, you know, we need these words. We're going to use these languages and these terms, right? We're going to talk about racializing gender bodies and this and that. But we don't want to over identify with those terms because they're way too simple for the radical complexity of what it means to be alive. They are. And so that's part of what this work is about: it's about saying, wink, nod. We know we have to talk about race. We know that I'm racialized in a certain way. You are. We got gender. We got to talk about it. We got to know something about how to communicate about it. But goodness, in the 21st century, given the year and a half we just went through, if we can't figure out uh, how to avoid the trap, of like overly fixed thinking of putting myself in a box, putting you in a box, putting our kids in these boxes. If we can't figure out ways to avoid these traps, to name that they are traps and to know that they are, right? And to say, you know, we've got to do complex thinking out loud and at home. (laughs) You know, the paradoxical thinking of both and, you know, we're all kind of multiple race, actually, if there is a thing called race, whatever it is, we're all much more kind of let's say, infused with, especially in the United States, if you lived here at in any degree your time, we're all kind of, you know, formed and informed by the different strands of what race is. And yet we have different and specific particular experiences. So whiteness has a certain kind of set of teachings with it. But again, every white body person is having a different reality and experience. We're not going to put white people in a box and say they all are just as we don't want to be put in boxes of, you know, any of us by these identity characteristics. So that's the challenge to really figure out how to, with what we call color insight, turn toward rather than away from this aspect of our lives, but with some nuance and really with that will again and again to listen and learn to listen and learn, to listen and learn. And to, from that place of the learning, which is always provisional. In other words, we're always just, you know, we learn this much and then, you know, (laughs) we're not done. And as long as we're breathing, we're fortunate to have the opportunity to learn some more from the next conversation and the next engagement, the next mess up, okay? So it's that with that kind of cultural, if you will, or intellectual humility, That kind of, yeah, my voice matters, but so does hers. So does his, so does theirs. My experience matters, but really so does theirs. Okay, so we're opening up that aperture around like decentering ourselves a little bit, but sometimes taking center, but sometimes letting it go. And then embedding, ideally, some of a sense of the ethics of this sort of socially engaged mindfulness. Because there is an ethical call to that. It is not just about personal spa-like mind clarification, although that's helpful. We all need that, especially at this time where we're overextended and exhausted and sad and traumatized every day one way or another. We need the spa-like support. But the truth is, I wouldn't be here. I certainly wouldn't have written this book if I didn't also understand mindfulness as a, um, a deep medicine for repairing our relationship in the world and with each other and with the planet, you know? So yeah, all of this is possible through these practices, but most mindfulness will not introduce mindfulness. Like many of the ways you get introduced to mindfulness aren't about the interpersonal piece and about the collective change piece. But I do think, you know, that's what my work has been about. Helping us see and understand color inside as support for doing the work of change supported by this multidimensional awareness that our lives are precious and we have power. Let's use it wisely together.
0: I love that, right? At its core, it's remembering that we are all responsible for ourselves and that we can see people as people, as individual cases and not just labeling them. And when you said navigating this space and and helping us do that, one of the biggest questions I really wanted to ask you was, in this space that we're at, right? I'm seeing this divide between like this cancel culture and holding people accountable and perfectionism versus this mindfulness, loving kindness approach. And how do, you know, there's criticism for both sides, right? Like from us, there are white people very angry at our platforms labeling, saying, dear white women, like come join the conversation. There's people calling us racist for that. There's also criticism, you know, Not necessarily at us, but we hear criticism from Black people who think it's showing weakness or catering to whiteness if we allow white people to express emotion. You know, how do you, how do we approach these scenarios and these people who are having those reactions with this sense of mindfulness? How do we help differentiate between white fragility and white people just being emotional? Like, how do we approach this?
2: You know, we do it one moment at a time, of course, with this, you know, ideally with that capacious vision that apprehends that, you know, it's a marathon, not a kind of a sprint, really, you know, there will be times when we feel like we're sprinting together, and we're trying to get to something. But really, we're really in this, ideally, if we're lucky for the rest of our lives, I think of one of my teachers, John Paul Lederach, he's like a world renowned conflict resolver, he's a kind of person who's flowing into Rwanda, or, you know, to Bosnia to help resolve conflict. And he's kind of emeritus now. So he now teaches others what he's learned. And what has he learned from more than 40 years of flying into conflict zones that, and he says, you know, y'all aren't going to want to hear my answer to how you can get through the challenges going forward that you're facing. And we're like, please tell us. And he's like, look, find somebody whose experience is very different from your own and begin a conversation with them that you're willing to be in for the rest of your lives. That's it. And so how we navigate these conversations is not going to be one size fits all. And sometimes we might be in a moment. I've been in moments where I've been angrier than I am right at the moment. <laughs> I can get angry. Or I've been in a moment where I've needed to get out of the conversation for a while because it's just too much for me. But thankfully, I can restore. Human beings go through stuff. We have, you know, emotions are like the weather. We go through storms. But can we find ways of restoring when we need to, stepping out when we need to, stepping back in? To me, and some folks say that my book is a kind of a manual for finding a way to be in the storms as they rage and whatever's coming up. And so there's no one right answer to all of this. We're going to be, if we're looking to be loved universally, we need to find other work. People are going to criticize us. That's the way of it. But If you can feel the center and the ground of your own embodied ethics, self and other accountability, stepping back when, you know, a particular modality isn't working, that's okay. It's not necessarily meant to reach every person, but trust that the, you know, the insight that you have, that there's some value in being a bridge In a time when everybody is disconnected, I'm just gonna close this with saying, you know, I had the privilege and honor of going to South Africa and hearing from some of the, you know, teachers there who were brought together to look at how mindfulness might support healing from social injustice in a South African context. And one of the deep teachers there was just like, listen, clear. And I've quoted him in my book in several places Baba Kademwa, we've gotta heal the separations. It's not going to be easy coming in with a kind of a message of healing. And it may not be the message that we want to carry into every space. It's up to you. You know, you get to decide. Total respect. But if you're feeling called to be on the, you know, a bridge and to help heal separations, you are not alone. I think the planet is calling all of us to do that, frankly. So, you know, will it be the message that everybody wants to hear? Not always. And that's okay. Is it the message that the universe seems to be wanting us to hear? It's, let's listen for that. And if, if maybe we think it is, trust and do what you're here to do. Everybody has original medicine. And certainly the medicine y'all are bringing is healing some folks and is a part of the solution. Might not be the whole solution. It's definitely a part of it. So I thank you for inviting me into the conversation with you today.
0: Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> you're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news We have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women podcast and Twitter at DWW podcast. And if you love us support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here.